Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 77. Listening to Gerald Custer took four and a half episodes, so it does qualify in my own mind as a wander. You might be exhausted, maybe even a little annoyed at me for doing that, or just confused. Or maybe you might just be delighted and happy that I did take us on that little trip. Either way, it was definitely not a small wander, and I do appreciate that you took the time to go with me, especially during the busy holiday season. Episodes 72, 73, 74, 75, and 76 contained close to the complete deposition that Gerald Custer gave to the ARRB in 1997. I really did give you a head fake in episode 72 when I told you I was going to edit out portions of the deposition to make it shorter and more manageable. Ultimately, I did do that for the initial portions of episode 72 only, but then nothing after that, as I ultimately decided that it would be best for you to hear most all of it, taking out only some door slams and long pauses and other annoying background noise contained in the recording, but leaving all the conversation in. This deposition is one of the few that was recorded on audio tape and not just transcribed. So all the intonations of his voice, the humor, the cynicism, and he is a colorful character, it was all there, as tedious as it was to listen to all of it. Well, you just got to hear as much detail and as much candid discussion as there is in this case, and it was a set of episodes that covered an important and complex topic, the radiology exam, which was, truthfully, central and key to making a forensic determination about the wounds that President Kennedy suffered and where they really came from. If there was one group of evidence that could do that, well, the radiology exams, along with the photographs, were it. And of course, they were all just hidden away for a long time. I have to believe they were hidden on purpose, and not just for Kennedy family privacy concerns. And if you have ever stared at an x-ray, and because I have been in the hospital business for a very long time, of course, I have stared at an x-ray, well, one thing I can tell you is that unless you are an expert in reading them or you are someone with extensive experience doing them, as Custer was, he had more than 35 years experience, by the way, at least at the time of his testimony, most of the time you won't really know what you are looking at. The radiologist in this case was Dr. Ebersol, for whom Custer worked. And while Ebersol on the stand sounds impressive, you will hear him starting in episode 78. The undertone, though, of Custer's testimony leaves you with some, let me just say, doubt about the good doctor, Dr. Ebersol. And it may be more than just some doubt, depending on how you interpreted what you heard from Custer and how much you believed of what you heard. If Custer is to be believed, Ebersol deliberately was involved in the fabrication of evidence, instructing Custer to do so. So, if that is true, game over when it comes to Ebersol. Listening to Gerald Custer directly was hearing it from the horse's mouth. It was the longest series of episodes focused solely on one witness that I have done yet. And in my mind, there is no better deposition to hone in on that is available in an audio form. So if you got bored and took my advice at the beginning of episode 75, you may have opted out of listening to episodes 75 and 76, which were the last two episodes that contained some of his testimony. Personally, I hope that you did not do that. But if you did, I completely understand. And that is what this episode 77 is all about to try and summarize what happened and what we heard and learned and to help us try and make sense of it all with some very real and very substantive takeaways from Gerald Custer. And there are quite a few, to be candid about it. 
So if you were a dutiful listener to episodes 72 through 76, well, maybe you already have it all figured out. And if that is the case, you may just want to skip me here in this episode 77 and go directly to episode 78, where we start listening to John Ebersol, who, as I said, was Custer's direct supervisor that night. You might have it all down pat if you were able to listen closely enough, like me. Well, there were so many points in Custer's testimony that I had to listen to the entire three and a half hours four times and write all the points down in a notebook in order to keep track of them all. I'm hoping you won't skip this one either because I like talking to all of you. And you may like to hear my perspective and summary on it too. But either way, I'm good with whatever you decide. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 77 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Let's jump right in and try to summarize what we learned from Custer's testimony that is noteworthy. Probably first and foremost is Custer's confirmation that the autopsy was nothing more than something that had to be done, but that it did not have to be done correctly. And just about everything that he saw that night and was able to describe to us seems to reinforce that conclusion. In his own words, it was not an autopsy that was being done to implicate something unknown, so to speak. As he would say, again, in his own words, about the idea of trying to find facts through the autopsy, his words on that topic simply were, forget it. Now, that is a judgmental conclusion on his part and less based on direct and tangible facts. But it's important to start with that tonight because it is an overarching theme of the evening. And in his defense, Custer does have plenty of factual details that we will get to in a moment that clearly support the idea that evil was present that night at the autopsy. The next takeaway is that Custer was adamant that the autopsy was being directed by two men who were in the gallery that night at the morgue. One of them was an unidentified four-star general that was either Air Force or Army, but the gentleman was not an admiral. Custer was familiar with the uniform of an admiral, and the man he points out here was not a Navy man. He was sure of that, and he clearly identified this man as having four stars running down his arm on his uniform. This four-star general was directing the autopsy along with a second individual that was not a military man. And given his understanding of certain medical aspects, particularly his knowledge of the myelogram, well, Custer surmised that this second private individual was the president's personal physician, which, as we know, was Admiral Berkeley, who was, of course, an MD. Custer did not identify either of these two men by name. He didn't know them. That does seem strange that he did not try and subsequently understand who they were, their names. Even years after the fact, when he began to interact at least some with some of the JFK assassination research community. We also learned that Custer clearly said these two men, including the general, were barking orders all night long and at various times throughout the autopsy, apparently giving these orders to all who were directly involved in performing autopsy steps, or at least to Humes, Boswell, and Fink. Custer cited particular circumstances where these two men gave orders to go no further or don't do this or don't do that. Very demonstrable direction and intervention in the autopsy itself. And they would at times invoke the Kennedy family name. A good example of this is when Dr. Ebersol put one of the initial skull films on the viewing box and began to make pencil marks where he saw bullet trajectories. He was immediately admonished not to do that. Custer would go on to describe the involvement of these two autopsy overseers as more cohesive with the gallery instructions once Fink got there and became actively engaged with Humes and Boswell. But in Custer's view, the aim of this intervention was clear. 
and he answered when asked the questions. He answered that it was not done in the name of concern around disfigurement of the body during the autopsy. He implied that it was done to impede the process or to obscure the results of the autopsy. Again, back to his central conclusion that the autopsy wasn't meant to find the true facts. In the third takeaway, Custer points out that there was a chaotic scene in the morgue itself during the time the autopsy was conducted, contrasting it to the quiet, methodical environment that forensic pathologists would normally work in when performing an autopsy. He paints a picture of it, and this is his word to describe it, it was mayhem, with a stream of phone calls coming into the morgue during the autopsy itself, including calls from what he describes as downtown Washington, and also calls from Dallas. One has to wonder who was on the other line from Dallas, and if such calls from Dallas indeed really did come in. Did he talk to any of the Dallas doctors that night? Was that one of those calls? We don't know, because many of the follow-up questions that should naturally have been asked of him by the lawyers as he left these tidbits, these hanging chads out there, were completely missed by Jeremy Gunn and others who were doing the interrogation. So as I personally sat there listening to these tapes more than once, I cried out for the ask and the answer that never was. The interrogators had their defined questions, and they were working hard to keep Gerald Custer from wandering, understandably so, because he was a wanderer, for sure. But those wanders should have been allowed to happen. The interrogators would have learned a bit more if they had been more patient with them and attentive to them. Well, anyway, back to the phone calls from Dallas. If those calls were not from the doctors from Dallas, then who else would possibly be calling from Dallas and what would be the nature of any conversations that were so important that they had to be undertaken with the autopsy doctors directly at that very moment during the autopsy? Hmm. Think back to the back wound on this one and the connection to the throat wound. The fourth point is that, for the most part, Custer believed that the x-rays being shown to him during this 1997 deposition were indeed the originals, originals that he took, because he took all the x-rays himself that night, and this is important since there has been so much speculation about whether any of the x-rays were doctored or that other x-rays were substituted for the real ones, after the fact. Indeed, Custer revealed the existence of his own crude metal instrument with holes in it that he used routinely for unique identification within x-rays, sort of his personal signature to show that any particular film was one that he took. Custer would include this crude metal object in the x-ray by placing it somewhere in camera view in the vicinity of the area being radiographed, and the presence of this metal instrument showing up in the x-ray is one factor that actually helped Custer to verify that the x-rays in question, the ones that were shown to him during the deposition, were indeed x-rays taken by him that night at Bethesda. And he was able to answer that question throughout the review on multiple occasions related to various x-rays that he was shown. And he did it with a great deal of confidence as the interrogators asked him about the authenticity of each x-ray. But there were some x-rays that did not have this unique identifier on them. We'll get to those in a moment, and why. That was the good news on the x-rays, but here is the bad news on the x-rays. Some of the school x-rays are, indeed, missing from the National Archives. Custer confirmed that. And here's some important details on that. Custer took the skull films first, and there were a total of six skull x-rays that were taken. He methodically went through the ones that he took. All six were taken in that first filming session, probably right around 7.30 or 8 o'clock that night as they got started. But the two oblique or tangential views were now missing from the National Archives by the time that Custer was deposed. Custer confirmed that these two missing x-rays were indeed taken by him that night. They were taken from the vantage point that would allow you to look from above and down into the head so that the direction of travel of the bullets would be clear. Imagine in your mind what that x-ray would have shown, 
how revealing such an x-ray would be regarding the angle that the bullet entered the head and then traveled. Just like a drone looking down on a highway from above, the path and the direction of that bullet, or bullets, was revealed by that view of the x-ray. And these fragments that were identified were traveling from anterior right to posterior left, supporting a shot which entered from the front. These x-rays, in Custer's opinion, were further proof that there was a bullet that entered the front right and that the resulting fragments traversed to the back and to the left, producing an ever-widening conical shape as they shredded brain tissue and as they plowed further through and into the brain. And the only logical conclusion, from Custer's perspective, was that these fragments produced this type of damage as they moved from front to back. And again, in Custer's technical opinion, the entrance and direction was reinforced by the expanding conical shape that the bullet fragments left as they took their path. In his view, it was a characteristic that happens with bullets as they enter and begin to traverse. Really, this is big news, as it means that the two x-rays that clearly showed damage supporting a front entrance wound to the head, a wound which traversed from front to back and not from back to front, those two x-rays were radiographed by Custer and they were now missing. And he confirmed that. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind. Custer was an x-ray tech, and at 35 years of experience, by the time his testimony was taken, he was undoubtedly more knowledgeable than he was back on that night in 1963, especially after spending a great deal of time at UPMC in Pittsburgh, which is a very large and very sophisticated health system. But still, he chronicles how he saw these things then, and that he made earnest attempts right then, that night, to point them out to Dr. Ebersol. And he was told to just shut up and do his job. Right from the start, Custer was dropping bombshell facts. This next one is fantastic. When he picked the body up to take pictures of the torso, the lumbar spine, and the pelvis, a large-sized bullet fragment, about three to four centimeters in length, which is about one and a half inches long, fell on the table out of President Kennedy's back. He stated that Dr. Fink then picked it up with a pair of forceps, and that was the last time he saw that fragment. That is a pretty fantastic story, and it adds even more mystery to the back wound. Next, an even more fantastic revelation, is the story that Custer told about the falsification of a couple of key x-rays, a fabrication that occurred early the following morning, on Saturday. It relates to the x-rays taken of the skull fragments that had been delivered to the autopsy room from Dallas. Custer was ordered that Saturday morning to tape bullet fragments to one side of those skull fragments and then take x-rays of them. He states that Dr. John Ebersol, his superior, ordered him to do it, and Ebersol told him to keep his mouth shut about it, and he said that to Custer in no uncertain terms. And this happened just after Ebersol had come back from what was described as a Secret Service briefing at the White House. That sounds nefarious, doesn't it? Obviously, those x-rays of the late-arriving skull fragments showed the presence of bullet fragments, metal fragments on the inside of the skull. Those pieces of skull were blasted out as a result of the head wound, pieces that were from the upper rear portion of the head. So, if one were to find metal fragments there on the interior of those skull pieces, that would clearly and rather conveniently become corroborating evidence on where the headshot entered the brain, that is, from the rear. Custer was telling us this story, which turned out to be about the false manufacture of more evidence that supported a rear head wound entry. Bullet fragments found right there on the inside of those particular pieces of skull fragment. They were one of the compelling reasons that the autopsy physicians were able to conclude that the shots came from the back. It was one more important supporting detail that those particular skull fragments, when pieced together, supposedly had beveling on the inside of those pieces. Well, when you brought them all together like pieces of a puzzle, 
the good doctors concluded that such beveling on the underside of those skull fragments, if it did exist, that was strong evidence of an entry wound. And so the bullet fragments found on the underside of those same pieces of skull would be the icing on the cake. Icing that solidified that the wound in question in that area, in the top back of the head, was the point of a rear entry. But what Custer was essentially saying to us was that these were doctored x-rays, and they were evidence that was manufactured for that purpose, to reinforce the evidence that the shot came from the rear. It was that plain and simple. Quite startling, for sure, but still a plain and simple fact that Ebersol, and who knows who ordered Ebersol, but whoever did, manufactured evidence to bolster the narrative of a fatal shot coming from behind, conveniently lining up with the lone gunman's theory already in place by the start of the autopsy. Custer wasn't sure why they did that, at least not at that moment, and he asked why, and Ebersol told him that the x-rays were to be used as part of the making of a bust of the president. We know now that there were plenty of other good x-rays of Kennedy's head that were on file at Bethesda at the time, from previous medical work that had been done on the president. So this explanation for its need was highly dubious. This discussion has been highly touted in conspiracy books, and I wonder if Custer got it from there first, or was it that Custer is telling the truth and it's the other way around? I tend to believe that Custer is credible here and he is telling the truth. He had something to say about the throat wound, too. When asked about any observations he might have of it, and what he said in deposition was pretty controversial, he described the wound in the anterior throat area as a typical bullet hole that he estimated was a little bit bigger than his little finger in dimension. Now, that clearly implies that such wound was an entrance wound. And at the time he first looked at that wound, he did not observe a long slit that might have represented the tracheostomy. Recall the long, wide, gaping hole that is so evident in the autopsy photograph that has become emblematic of that wound. Custer simply said that such a wound did not exist at the outset of the autopsy, and that possibly it was elongated later in the process of probing the wound. But that was conjecture on his part. Again, this one is a little confusing to me. The application of that tracheotomy incision must have produced some distortion of the wound. Although other doctors have testified that a typical tracheotomy slit would not have significantly expanded the wound itself. So maybe, in fact, Custer's recollection is accurate on this one. These goings-on were fantastic, all right. So how did the folks in authority that night keep the lid on this? How did the secrecy clauses come into play? Well, Custer identified three distinct incidents over the course of the night of the 22nd and the day of the 23rd, where he was told in no uncertain terms to keep quiet. And that would have been the nicest version of delivery of that order. Custer was clear on how clear that Ebersol was on this point. As Custer describes it, Ebersol made it perfectly clear that he was not to speak. And Custer quoted Ebersol as saying on, I think, more than one occasion, keep your mouth shut. The next day, on Saturday, and after Ebersol came back from a White House briefing, the one I just mentioned, well, at that time, he made it clear again, and Ebersol told Custer that, this time, it came from a very high level, and that Custer was not to talk about anything related to the autopsy with anyone, and that if he did, he would be very sorry. Let's pause on that one. I think that constitutes a real threat. I'm just saying. The third encounter in warning was the most dramatic in Custer's eyes. It was after he signed the actual order of silence on Saturday morning which uh, Custer refers to as a gag order. The officers present in the commander's office at that moment told him that if he talked, it would be the sorriest day of his life and that he would spend some time behind bars. They had armed MPs standing by the doors of the commanding officer's office where this whole thing took place. And Custer states that he thought those MPs standing outside the door of the commander's office were for intimidation purposes, as he and others were being given the order 
to sign the secrecy order. And the or else part of that conversation was that uh, at least he felt that he wasn't getting out of there, out of that office, unless they signed the secrecy document right then. Otherwise, he was going to be hauled off by the MPs and going somewhere that he implied would not be very nice. We know, based on the totality of his testimony, that Custer had a diminished view of Dr. Ebersol, and on various occasions he reiterated that Ebersol was not a leader. Custer thought that Ebersol deferred leadership and looked to Custer himself for it during the autopsy, at least as it related to the taking of x-rays. Custer did all the work when it came to the taking of these x-rays, and to top it off, Ebersaw was still dismissive of the technical conclusions that Custer was making and verbalizing to Ebersaw as they were reviewing the x-rays. That may have felt personal to Custer. As Custer put it, right at the outset of the deposition, that he had a certain amount of expertise that he felt Ebersaw should have acknowledged, and he didn't. Custer described Ebersaw as a man that loved the limelight and loved to take credit for things, but he was not willing to take the heat. In the end, Custer would reiterate that Ebersaw was a follower and not a leader, and that Ebersaw was on board with whatever the company line was, so to speak. Ebersaw was going to do what those in charge told him to do. This is one man's opinion, of course, and his feelings about Ebersaw did not seem to be situational. In other words, he wasn't painting a picture that Ebersol had up to that point in life been a fine leader and an independent thinker, and then in the weight of this heavy moment and event, just succumbed. Rather, to the contrary, Custer seemed to imply that because of Ebersol's demonstrated attributes, Custer was perhaps not surprised by all of Ebersol's actions. He didn't say it that way, but that was the impression that I got based on the cumulative statements that he made about Ebersol during his testimony. Shortly after the incident where the two x-rays were fabricated, Custer described a circumstance where he was walking down the hallway and overheard a conversation between Dr. Ebersol and another radiologist, a doctor who turned out to be Roy Brown. He overheard the two of them discussing the Kennedy's case and that Dr. Ebersol was seeming to say that certain pertinent things had been taken care of. As soon as the two men realized that Ebersol was coming into earshot territory, the conversation seemed to cease. Under direct questioning by the attorneys, Custer was commendable because he said he heard many rumors, and they were just that, rumors, not verifiable, and while he stated and acknowledged their existence, he was reluctant to comment on them. Rumors that things had been taken care of, so to speak, and what all that meant. Surprisingly enough, the attorneys knew of this conversation in the hallway already, or somehow made a good guess as to who it was, and they asked Custer point blank if it was Dr. Roy Brown. After Custer had initially declined to identify who that second party was that was talking to Ebersol. Once the attorneys did that, to their good credit, by the way, and they offered up the second name of Roy Brown, Custer confirmed and agreed that it was indeed that person. Roy Brown was actually the head of the radiology department at Bethesda at the time of the autopsy, according to Custer, anyway. And so Ebersol was actually talking to his boss in that hallway conversation. We know that other evidentiary matter was destroyed, too, by Ebersol, and witnessed directly by Custer. Custer had routinely entered the request for President Kennedy's x-rays in the daily log contained in the radiology department. Ebersol directed Custer to tear out the entire page on which the entry was made. He gave it to Ebersol, and Ebersol destroyed it. He tore it up, right there in the presence of Custer. And when Custer asked why, the response from Ebersol was that it simply was, and I quote, none of your business. So why would Ebersol do that? X-rays being ordered for the president, obviously routine, and certainly not revealing of anything substantive, even from a privacy perspective, at least on the surface. If one believes that additional x-rays were to be taken, possibly substituted or added, such as the ones that contain the bullet fragments attached to the scalp fragments, 
then one can begin to understand why they wanted no entries in the radiology logbooks. Because if they were going to substitute secretly made autopsy x-rays or altered x-rays, it might look odd to someone investigating if the original batch was on record as being made in the logbook and then subsequent batches absent from the listing log would be inconsistent with how the first batch was handled. Their absence then would bring suspicion. So being able to say that none of them were listed in the log makes any type of alteration or substitution of x-rays easier and without conflict within the log itself. It seems to me as if that was exactly what was going on here, in light of the x-rays made of the skull fragments taped to the metal fragments. On the other hand, they very easily could have gone the other way, putting them all on the log, unless they were keeping their options open for even more chicanery at a later date with the x-rays. This is one for you as a juror to get a feel for. Custer also describes a moment at which Ebersol realizes that Custer was using his personalized metal device to make a personal identification mark on the x-rays, and he ordered Custer not to do that anymore. Not so nefarious, really, as any standard protocol today would prohibit that, I think. But it seems potentially more nefarious in this case during this time frame. And I wonder how much experience in the past that Ebersol and Custer had together, working together, because if this was a practice that Custer routinely applied and Ebersol was aware of from previous moments in time and saw no objections to it previously, it might draw more attention to an assassination researcher that Ebersol was now objecting to the practice. But this, we will probably never know. Custer was asked about who was taking notes that night, and he answered pretty crisply that Boswell and Humes had simple black books that they were taking notes in. But sadly, the lawyers never pressed that. There has never been any discussion in the record about whole black notebooks being used for note-taking by these two doctors. So with all the hullabaloo about the destruction of autopsy notes, it is surprising that, again, the lawyers didn't seize on this statement to try and learn more or ascertain the level of note-taking. Did they have 10 pages of notes or just one? How much writing were they doing? Custer finally did remember seeing Seibert and O'Neill taking notes as well, and he had a glib comment about that, that he could swear that they were writing a book because they were writing down notes about everything. Again, not sure how he was able to retain their names so clearly, but then not know who was directing things in the gallery. But they all were sworn to secrecy, and maybe the FBI guys announced themselves, you know, like a Broadway act. Hi, we're Seibert and O'Neill. Makes it easier to remember our name. Okay, I am being glib here, but the delivery of their name by Custer in such a matter-of-fact way, it makes me believe that he heard much about Seibert and O'Neill in his intervening 35-year period between the autopsy and the deposition. He would also go on to say that one of them, he wasn't sure which one of them, followed him up to the radiology processing area where Custer was developing the x-ray films. And the FBI agent wanted to enter and watch them being developed. <laughs> but Custer would not let him in. Not terribly relevant to our story, but one more interesting detail of what went on that night. And the FBI's probably earnest objective to make sure they watched the chain of evidence related to those x-rays. I'll give them a rebuttable presumption of good on that one. Custer used a bulky old portable GE unit that was on wheels, but wasn't as portable as the portable x-ray machines of today. It was frankly quite difficult to maneuver, and its bulkiness caused at least one x-ray to be cut off. But he disagrees with the later testimony of Ebersol that the unit was less capable inherently of taking a good radiograph. Rather, they did use different film in those portable units, and that did affect the overall quality of x-rays produced with that machine. It is a machine that, for sure, now, you would find in the Smithsonian, as he described it, as an antique of sorts that now punctuates the rapid advance in radiology filming that has occurred in the some 60 years since that moment. The true irony is that with the current 3D CT scan technology, most of these lingering questions about bullet trajectory and what was in the brain and where 
would likely have been easily answered by use of the modern technology that we have today. Unfortunately, it was still 1963. The first x-rays they took were school films, and they used a modified water's position of the body because of the unstable circumstance of the head and the fact that rigor mortis was already setting in. Modified waters is a technical position of the head when taking a film. He emphasized that all the radiology films were taken from the anterior side as there was no way that they could have turned the body over given the head's unstable position. This is relevant because, as you know, any pictures that would have been taken if you were trying to determine the existence of bullets or bullet fragments through the x-rays, bullets or fragments that entered from the rear and therefore were probably closer to the rear and would have been better revealed by an x-ray taken from the posterior side of the body. Well, the odd thing is that they did take photographs of the president's back. So what is up with that? At some point, they must have turned the president over to be able to do that. So that is a confusing statement by Custer that should be explored. There's probably an easy answer. I just don't get it. One thing is for sure, his description of the president's skull and its condition is nothing less than chilling. And it would seem to me to be a compelling reason for limiting movement of the body during the autopsy. Custer described it as if someone had taken a hard-boiled egg and rolled it in their hand. There were just fractures everywhere, and the skin was holding the skull altogether, but the bones underneath were all unstable. That is an analogy that I think hits home for all of us. Most of us have rolled an egg like that in our hand at one time or another. Custer did say that there was a total of between 14 and 20 x-rays taken that night. They were taking them in groups because the film contained in the cassettes was limited to a certain number of cassettes at a time. Why that is the case technically, I don't know. But they continued to take films as directed on at least four or five, perhaps even six occasions and then shuttle back and forth to where the old PACO processing unit was on the fourth floor to process the films. And after completion of that task, returning each time to the autopsy room so that the films could be put back up on the view box for viewing. The first set of which was at the outset of the autopsy, and the second about one hour later after receiving a phone call from Ebersol and being summoned to come back to the autopsy room. One thing that has baffled me until I listened to this conversation was the simpleton's view of what brain matter was left in the brain at the time of the x-rays were taken. We know some was simply blown away by the shots, and so much of the brain matter was gone by the start of the autopsy. Without photos, it's simply left to the recollection and imagination of all who saw it, of just how much was still there and how much was really gone. And at what point was the actual remainder of the brain removed? So when Custer describes those streaks of fragments present in the middle of the brain, traversing the inside of the brain, where they would have otherwise been suspended by brain matter themselves, because that is how they still showed up on x-rays, well, how is that the case, especially if the brain had been removed and when much of the brain matter was gone? There was an exchange between the lawyers and Custer on this. It was a pretty plain and simple question. How was this spray of fragments captured in the x-rays if the brain matter was gone? Well, we do know that the first set of x-rays were taken of the skull when what was left of the brain was still intact before they removed what was left for later review. And on that matter the brain was never sectioned. And if you believe Custer's story about that night, you can imagine why they decided not to do that. It would have produced more damning evidence that there was a shot taken from the front that traversed from front to back. It would have confirmed what was ostensibly already evident in the two x-rays of the skull that were now missing. But that's a digression. The real question is, How does that streak of fragments show up on the x-ray? Well, Custer was somewhat baffled by that himself, and he answered very simply that those fragments were either attached to skull matter or they were still suspended in the brain matter that still remained in the skull at the time of the x-ray. 
That seems obvious, but I guess that is the simple answer. Custer also pointed out that the one x-ray that has an emulsion burn on it was the one where Ebersol got the film too close to the lamp. And while this was not done that often, this particular x-ray was put out of business by his little snafu. And Custer pointed out that it happens to be a burn right on the spot of the x-ray where the doctors identified more bullet fragments. How convenient. Unrelated to the x-rays, the lawyers taking the deposition went down a line of questioning about the casket. As we all know, and you will hear more in subsequent episodes about the casket, there was and still is a lot of questions being raised about the body and whether it arrived in a shipping casket instead of the bronze ceremonial casket in which it left Parkland, and whether there was something done to remove the body and do work on it before the official autopsy began. All that stuff that we have already touched upon earlier. So, related to that, there was a confusing exchange between Custer and the lawyers when they asked him to discuss the casket and his observations of the casket. One thing that was clear is that he clearly rejected the idea that the president arrived in some sort of an ordinary shipping casket there that night. He categorically rejected that. He was there in the morgue when they took the body out of the bronze casket, and he himself helped to take the body out of that bronze casket. He was explicit about that. However, as the testimony unfolded, he seemed to articulate that there were two well-appointed caskets there that night one that he saw being removed from a black limousine, not a gray one, at the start of the autopsy, and then one that he saw about an hour later in the morgue cooler room as he was leaving. As you recall, the morgue cooler room is sort of an anteroom before you get into the morgue. And he saw that after taking the first set of films and as he was beginning to head back to the fourth floor to develop those films. He seemed to imply that the second ceremonial casket in the morgue was delivered after he came back to take the first set of films, but made its way there sometime before he exited through the morgue cooler room right after taking that first set of films. And he described that he saw the men taking the ceremonial casket out of the black hearse, again, not the gray one, and bringing the casket into the morgue, the one that he then helped to take the body out of. He was there when they opened the casket. One very important point of note about this moment. He said the president's body was fully clothed in a suit as they opened the casket, not nude. This is a real pause for me. I find it hard to believe that they would have redressed the president's body at Parkland for the ride to Bethesda. I don't recall that in any of the documentation I've seen before. But he is the second credible witness to say that a clothed body of the president was present at Bethesda. He described the head as being covered with some sort of plastic. That must have been clear because he could see the bloody sheets underneath that were wrapped around the president's head, undoubtedly placed there by the folks at Parkland to limit the amount of blood that was spilling onto and inside the cloth linings of that casket. I think someone was thinking that at that moment, when he left Parkland, that somehow that casket might still be the one he would be ultimately buried in. Who knows about that one? The only question I had here was, did anyone at Parkland remember wrapping the president's head with an extra plastic layer around those sheets? Certainly, the use of sheets around his head placed there at Parkland before closing the casket up and sending it back to Bethesda is well documented. But an extra layer of plastic? Again, I don't recall ever seeing that in anyone else's testimony. Hmm, that's one to spend a few more research minutes on, I think. By someone, anyway. Custer recounts that he was told that the body went to Walter Reed Hospital first by ambulance. Sadly, this line of questioning was not pursued at all by the lawyers once the statement was made. Maybe not much more to tell here, but I think it would have been worth probing more. At least, who told him that? And when? He did say that, in addition to the black ambulance, which he observed them taking a casket out of at the outset of the autopsy, that later, at the end of the night, that he did see a gray ambulance too, and it was parked off to the side of the morgue entrance, but not directly positioned in front of the morgue entrance. I wonder how much all of this uh, related to the ambulances was clouded by things he heard subsequently in life after that night 
because he was confused at times, and the way he tried to correct himself was confusing to the attorneys too, and all of us listening, but especially to those attorneys who were asking the questions. He did at least once contradict himself here, saying that the first time he saw a casket was in the morgue, and then later he said that he went outside the morgue prior to the start of the autopsy and could see them removing the casket from the black and, again, not the gray ambulance. So which one of these statements of his is correct? I don't know. But those statements are conflicting, and he did not try to explain his earlier statement that he first saw a casket inside the morgue. And he did not correct that in light of the later statement. Again, I'm referring to where he saw them taking a casket first out of the black hearse. And one of the lawyers actually did call him out on that. Anyway, the takeaways are that he saw the casket coming out of a black ambulance and not a gray one. He saw the president as they opened the casket, and it was a ceremonial casket and not a shipping casket. He saw no evidence of a shipping casket. And also, the president was clothed when they opened the casket, and his head was wrapped in an extra layer of what appeared to be clear plastic. And finally, there was a second ceremonial casket that appeared in the morgue cooler room sometime after he arrived to take the initial x-rays, but was apparently placed there prior to when he exited the morgue as he was on his way to the fourth floor to develop the first set of x-rays. We have to remember that Custer was really not present for all that went on in the autopsy, and we should be clear about that. After Kennedy was removed from the casket by Custer and others, and he was laid on the autopsy table, and then the first set of x-rays were taken, and the skull x-rays were taken first, Custer was then asked to leave, and he went back to the radiology area, where he waited for about an hour. As we mentioned earlier, Custer waited during that time with his student, Ed Reed, and they were accompanied by an FBI agent. After about an hour, they were summoned back to the morgue by Ebersol, who telephoned him. By the time that Custer returned, the president was nude on the table and the typical Y incision of an autopsy was already in place. And Custer believes by that time that some organ removal had already taken place, including removal of the president's liver. But he wasn't sure of the extent of organ removal at that time. Why that is important is how it affects x-rays when attempting to locate or see metal fragments on the films, metal bullet fragments. Custer went on after his military career to work in the private healthcare sector. For my friends listening who are back in Pittsburgh, Custer may have been a Western Pennsylvania native. I think you can tell by the slight regional accent in his voice and the unique pronunciation and tense of some words used by native Pittsburghers, yinzers as they are affectionately called by some. Eventually, Custer went back to Pittsburgh where he went to work for Montefiore Hospital and eventually for UPMC or the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is a highly respected healthcare system in Pittsburgh. UPMC is now one of the most prominent regional hospital and healthcare systems in the country with international operations as well. I am sure that both the training and experience he received there was exemplary. But I will reiterate that in the deposition, he was speaking to the group after accumulating some 35 years of experience. He had less than five years of x-ray tech experience in the armed forces at the time of the Kennedy autopsy, and there was no questioning or testimony asked or answered about how extensive his own x-ray experience was at the time as it relates to gunshot wounds. Nevertheless, 35 years later, in the permanent nature of those x-rays, fixed for all time at the moment they were taken, were still there for him to apply the knowledge and experience gained in all those 35 years. He is not a doctor trained in radiology, and we have to keep that in mind. And as a tech, he is not licensed to read those x-rays. But 35 years of taking them and working with the doctors who are licensed to read them, along with his own formal training, leads to effective apprenticeships that should be given serious weight in this conversation. Custer also reviewed Ebersol's sworn testimony and made comments where he agreed and disagreed with what was said. Clearly, Ebersol was not accurate on certain details, some important and some not so important, but Custer agreed with certain things he said, so it seemed objective in terms of Custer's review of Ebersol's testimony. I would recommend that you listen to this in detail. We'll pick this point up when we discuss Ebersol and listen to his testimony. 
The one comment that he made about Ebersol's testimony that I found interesting is that he said he ignored basic physics and should have understood that a force must have come in from the front to do the damage that was done in the posterior of the skull. And Ebersol also stated that while he saw a metal fragment in the brain, it was not a portion of a bullet. Ebersol also stated that he took an x-ray at 3 a.m. Custer says that was flatly not true. Both of those statements were flatly false. Custer also disagrees with the idea that the portable machine available was not producing the same quality x-ray as the fixed machines. Again, there was more said about his testimony, but no need to add any more here. As laser-focused as Custer was on minute facts related to the autopsy, he seemed equally perplexed about the exact dates of his own employment for various employers. This ability to recall exact details of the autopsy some 34 years later, but at the same time, he could not recall basic time frames of his employment, even broad estimates he was struggling with. This exchange certainly did not add to his overall credibility. Although I can't understand the relatively trivial nature of those facts compared to the intensity of the autopsy experience itself and how those events of that night and the next morning must have seared the details into his mind, possibly to be remembered forever, and maybe with a little help from the research community too, help in jogging his memory and recalling certain facts. And after all, they did engage with him, and talking about it does bring back a lot of memories. I'm sure. Memories that he was forbidden to talk about, frankly, with anyone until the secrecy order was lifted. And that was many, many years later. Gerald Custer's testimony is now precious. It has preserved the story of the autopsy that night in a way that gives us a courageous glimpse into what really was going on, going on at Bethesda that night. And what was going on that night might truly have been a haunted house. We need to know more to determine if that was really true. But after three and a half hours with Gerald Custer, it's at least feeling real spooky to me. Gerald Custer died three years after giving this testimony. He died of a massive heart attack. If nothing else, it underscores how important it was to finally get to witnesses and let them tell their story. In his case, even when it was some 34 years after the fact. The secrecy orders surrounding the autopsy made the truth more opaque for a much longer time. But in 1997, with the help of the ARRB and its legal team, the world now has a better understanding of what was really happening that night at Bethesda. Thank you for listening to episode 77 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 